Thank you, Lord. Father, we worship you this morning, Lord. We give you praise. We exalt your name, Father, because you are mighty and holy and worthy of it, Lord Jesus. Father, we as your, as your followers, as your body, Lord, are so blessed, Lord, so blessed to partake in your glory with you, Father, to worship you in eternity. Father, you are a just judge. You are righteous, Father. We praise you, Lord, for giving your Son that we might have eternal life. Father, we just, we're so thankful, Lord. You sacrificed your own Son on our behalf, Lord, for our, own, for our transgressions, Lord. And we worship you for it, Father, and we pray that we would glorify you this morning through the reading of your word. I pray that your truth would be proclaimed through your scriptures, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir in our hearts this morning. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's been a little while since I've been up here, but uh, this morning we'll be continuing where we left off in our series in Romans, starting with chapter 3. If you recall in chapter 2, Paul has shifted his focus from addressing sin and judgment to more specifically the Jews. Paul first points out the sin and hypocrisy that was prevalent within the Jewish community. He then challenges them that if they desire to be teachers and instructors of the law, then they themselves must also keep the law. He then goes on to talk about the Jewish covenant of circumcision as an area of hypocrisy within the Jewish community. Paul's argument is not that circumcision, or is that circumcision needs to be of the heart and not only the physical outward appearance. The point he is trying to make is not for or against circumcision specifically, but rather the motivation behind it. The traditions and covenant practices are meaningless without the correct condition of the heart behind it. You can't place your faith in your religious traditions, rather that the motivations that drive them. Are these merely works to try to achieve salvation? Or are they an overflow of the Spirit, the fruits of a changed heart? So now in chapter 3, we will consider God's covenant with the Jewish people and original sin. Paul shifts his focus from the sin and hypocrisy within the Jewish community to the advantages and the hope that the Jewish people have as God's chosen people. Then, to not single out the Jewish people, Later in chapter 3, he covers original sin and the guilt that every man shares before a holy God. Everything that we have covered in Romans so far is leading up to the culmination at the end of chapter 3, as Paul presents the gospel boldly and clearly. Paul has been leading up to this moment. All of the sin and guilt and hypocrisy the admonishments and judgments, everything thus far has been leading to the gospel. Now, if you were a missionary sent out to share the gospel, to explain original sin, and to convict and lead to the cross, and were given but one chapter of the Bible to bring with, 
I submit to you, you should take Romans chapter 3. Now I've split chapter 3 up into three sections, so this morning we'll just be covering the first section. Uh, so keep in mind as we proceed here this morning that Paul's aim, and the aim of the Holy Spirit I trust, is to prepare the hearer for the gospel, to soften the hardened heart, to quelch any doubts of God's sovereignty, and to bring the hearer to repentance. Paul begins chapter 3 with a series of questions that he anticipates in objection to his previous points from chapter 2. And then he proceeds to answer them. So this gives us a very clear understanding of Paul's intentions here and leaves very little up for interpretation. Paul is trying to cover all the bases here as he prepares the hearer for the gospel. So with that introduction, would you please stand with me if you are able, out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I am using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So Paul spends both chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Romans proving that both Jew and Gentile are under sin and therefore guilty before a holy God and in need of a Savior. In the end of chapter 2, he focuses specifically on the Jews and goes into great detail on specific sins that the Jews are likely to be guilty of. Primarily, the focus is on hypocrisy and putting undue trust in traditions rather than examining the heart. Paul was able to speak from a place of authority to the Jewish leaders, as he himself had been very zealous in his pursuit of knowledge in the law and the traditions of his forefathers. In fact, prior to his conversion, he was one of the biggest persecutors of the Christians and had the respect of the Jewish leaders. So now in the first few verses of chapter 3, Paul's anticipating some objections that may be made to the points he had previously made in chapter 2. He addresses these objections with a question-answer type format, and I think it would be helpful for us here if we just take, take this one question at a time. So the first question that he asks is this, so what advantage does the Jew have, or what is the benefit of circumcision? This would naturally be the first question one would ask following his admonishment of the Jews in the previous chapter. 
Now we touched on this briefly as we work through chapter 2, if you recall. God has established a covenant with the Jewish people, and he's entrusted them with his word and the law. Throughout the Old Testament, you will hear God referred to as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is identified as the God of the Jewish people. The Gentiles and the pagans around them worshipped false gods and did not know the one true God. So in chapter 2, as Paul points out the hypocrisy that has developed in the Jewish people, in their works-based view of salvation, he's anticipating a little pushback. So what was the point of all this? If we truly are God's people, why are we being picked on here? What about the covenant? Why are the Gentiles being rewarded and we're being chastised? Paul's answer to these questions is simple. The Jews have considerable advantage. Why? Because they were entrusted with the very word of God. If sin and corruption were the disease, which it is, the sin that separates us all from a holy God, they already have the cure. The very word of God is at their disposal. They've grown up with it. They've studied it. They teach it to their children. It's been passed down from generation to generation. The revelation of Christ is spelled out for them through the word of God. Now we as Christians today tend to take this for granted our easy access to the Bible. You can buy the Bible in stores. You can purchase it online. You can hear it being preached every Sunday morning like this morning. You can download it on your phone. But back at the time that Paul was writing this, it wasn't that simple. Most Gentiles had likely never heard the word of God or had very little exposure to it. If they were fortunate enough to realize that they were guilty of sin and that they needed to be granted repentance, they, they would not have been familiar with the word of God and therefore repentance also. So you can see Paul's point here. Having the word of God and growing up with it was a great advantage. Even if they were being rebuked at the moment, they've had every opportunity to repent. They know about repentance. They know what it is. They know the importance of it. And they know how to do it. Now, this holds true to us this morning, does it not? How many of us have grown up with the Word of God? Or if not grown up, you've at least had exposure to it, right? Maybe this morning's your first time at church, but most likely not. More than likely, you go to church somewhat regularly, and you even read your Bible throughout the week on your own, in your own studies. You have every advantage. The very Word of God, preserved for thousands of years through His divine providence, is sitting in your hands this morning. If you've repented and placed your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you and interprets the word for you to understand. What an honor. What a blessing. Paul continues here, What then, if some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Now put plainly, if the Jews have such a great advantage, then why have so many rejected Christ? Does this mean God has broken his covenant with his people 
or that his promises were not true? Now, as a, as a part of Paul's answer here, he quotes a verse from Psalm 51. In a moment, we'll turn there. I think it'll be helpful for us to get the full context of Psalm 51 to fully grasp Paul's response here. But Paul's answer to his question, has God broken his covenant? Were his promises not true? Well, absolutely not. Man may be weak in his sin and in his flesh, but God is faithful and true. His promises will not fade, and his glory will not be hidden. Sinful men need only to repent and turn to Christ, and God will grant them repentance and sanctify them. It is not God that has broken his covenant, but rather men that have violated the covenant. Let's take a look at Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my, in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David lays out the perfect framework and example of the gospel here for us this morning. He starts by confessing his sin and acknowledging that he needs God's forgiveness. He proclaims that God would be justified in judging him for his sin. God's word is true and unchanging. Notice David is crying out to the Lord, broken over his sin. His heart is in the right place. There is no pride or ulterior motives here. 
Although he has failed and sinned against God, he knows God's word has not changed. He is guilty before a holy God and without excuse. He doesn't try to justify his actions or make excuses for himself. He owns up to his sin. He doesn't flee from it. He faces it. He faces his sin head on because he also knows that God's promises of forgiveness are true. He need only repent and confess his sins and God is faithful to forgive. He trusts in the Lord's promises. David continues, Forgive me of my sins, restore me, take not your Holy Spirit, transform me and I will praise you. I will tell others of your faithfulness and righteousness. What a wonderful picture of the gospel for us. Regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our sin, if we repent with a broken and contrite heart, he is faithful to forgive. He is faithful to grant repentance and his Holy Spirit. If we cry out to him, he will answer. He will transform us into the image of his Son, and then we will worship him for it. Amen? And once we have received that forgiveness, we can't help but tell others about it. We want to share what he has done for us with the rest of the world. And this is how Paul answers the question, if some are unfaithful, does that mean God is unfaithful? If men have broken their promise, has God? Well, absolutely not. God is faithful to his word when he judges the wicked, but he is also faithful to forgive if we call upon his name. Although we may fail, we can have confidence that if we confess and repent, that he is faithful to forgive. The next question this morning, but if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? So in other words, if God is glorified and proven true to his word, when he judges men for their sin, why are they being punished? If their transgressions are only to highlight God's righteousness, isn't it unfair to judge them? Well, the answer this morning is absolutely not. Man must be judged for his sin, and a holy God will not tolerate sin. A just God will judge fairly and consistently regardless of the circumstances. Now let's imagine a hypothetical situation for a moment this morning. Let's say you've been in a car accident. You and your family have been gravely injured. Your car is totaled and the other driver has no insurance. Not only that, but the other driver was also intoxicated at the time of the accident. You were both driving down the highway in opposite directions when all of a sudden he swerves into your lane and hits you head on. Now he's arrested and shortly after let go on bail awaiting trial. Months go by and your family's recovery is a long and painful one, but praise God everyone survived. You try to bridle your anger as you find out that this is not the first time this driver 
has injured others while driving intoxicated. But you take comfort in knowing that the time will come when justice will be served. So the court date finally comes, and you're summoned as a witness in the case against him. Now imagine, if you will, the judge in this case. He's a good and fair judge. He always judges rightly according to the law. His sentences are black and white. There's no gray area. He convicts according to the law, and the sentence is always proportionate to the crime. In fact, he's grown a great reputation and is well known for his indiscriminate sentencing. Now, as the case begins, the defense attorney stands before the judge, but instead of pleading his case for the defense of the accused, he begins to target the judge. Is it fair, judge, that you convict my client? Have you not built your reputation on your convictions? You have selfish motives. You are only convicting my client to build your reputation further. How can my client be punished for the sake of your reputation? You see the problem here? It's not the judge who is on trial. It's the offender. The judge does not need to explain himself to the offender. He's in the place of authority, and he's doing his job correctly. It's irrelevant if his convictions also serve to highlight his success as a judge. That just comes with the territory. If God is glorified by judging consistently to his word, this does not mean that that he is unjust in his judgments. God will judge the world according to his word, and he will be glorified, and the opinions of sinful men are irrelevant. Paul continues to reiterate this point, but if by my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do what is evil that good may come. So Paul goes down the rabbit hole a little further in this frame of mind. The first question was, is it fair for God to judge if his judgments only bring him glory? Now he's anticipating the next objection. If my sin only brings God more glory in the end, why not continue to sin so that God may be glorified more? Well, I would ask you this question this morning. Which would bring God more glory? A sinner being judged and receiving their due punishment? Or a sinner, broken, crying out to the Lord in repentance and being born again, transformed into the image of Christ? One who was once dead in their trespasses, given new life and freedom from sin and the grave. Once sinful men gathered together in heaven, praising and glorifying God at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The church, the bride of Christ, united together, praising God for all eternity. I think I just answered my own question. There's no comparison. God will be glorified through us, the church, as we bring him glory through our obedience to his word. He is glorified by our worship 
and our submission to his word. He is glorified when we share the gospel and the numbers of those in his kingdom grow. One of the most beautiful pictures of God being glorified is featured in the book of Revelation. This is one of my favorite passages. I'm sure I've quoted it before, but I can't find a more fitting picture of what we are talking about here this morning. So this is from Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What a beautiful picture. There will be one day that all of us saints are gathered together in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will all be united together, united with Christ, our groom, worshiping him in unison. This is the glory that God wants this morning, church. Although judgment on a sinful man will bring God glory, the glory that God deserves from us is far different, far more beautiful. Verse 8 says, It was granted to her <clears throat> to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is our job, this side of glory, church. We have the marriage supper of the Lamb to look forward to, an eternity in God's presence, in his glory, worshiping him together. But for now, we're called to prepare ourselves, to prepare our fine linens for this day. Let us do that this morning, church. Let us strive to bring him glory here on earth. Let's be about his business. Forget about the cares of this world as they are fleeting and focus on Christ. Focus on the things that are eternal. Build up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. God will be glorified by our lives. Each and every one of us will bring glory to God through our lives whether it be through receiving the just and deserved punishment of our sin or by being transformed into the image of his Son. By our repentance, our obedience and faith, our service to the kingdom, by our praise and worship for all eternity and glory, let us glorify him the right way this morning, church. Let us glorify him with our lives, and with our obedience to his word. I would like to close this morning by reading Psalm 145 to you. <clears throat> this is Psalm 145. I will extol you, my King, 
and my God, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. To make known the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in his ways and kind in his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him, he also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak praises of the Lord and let all the flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just worship your name this morning, Lord. We give you praise and honor and glory, Father. You are a mighty and just and wonderful judge, Father. And we submit ourselves to your decrees, Lord. We submit ourselves to your word this morning. Father, we just pray that, we would be glor- or that you would be glorified through our lives, Lord. And I pray that it wouldn't be just only through judgment for our sin, Lord, but that you would be glorified through our actions, Lord, and through our words and through, through the declaration of your word to your people, Father. I pray that our souls would be submitted to you, that our hearts would be broken for those around us that don't know you, Lord. And I just pray, Father, that you would be glorified and that we would be sanctified. Just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.